morning. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. I know you've been there recently. Let's turn to chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews. And beginning our reading at verse 1 and continuing to the end of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints, and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope? We have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, 
and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Amen. God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, your word is before us and our hearts are before you. Lord, draw near now in the preaching of your word. Lord, you know your people and you know their needs. We ask that you'd lift up the hands that hang down, that you'd strengthen the feeble knees. Lord, that those who need correction would be corrected, that those who need reproof would be reproved, that those who need to be rescued would be delivered. Lord, do it for your name, do it for your glory, do it for our good, and get all the praise. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. 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 The book of Hebrews chapter 6, it takes you from the depths to the heights. It really does. I want us to look together at the content of the passage first, and then having looked at the content, I want us to consider some applications of the passage. In other words, in light of what the passage says, what should we think, what should we believe, what should we do? So first, the content of the passage. And as we look at the content, let's glance back at Hebrews chapter 5, because it really prepares us for what we encounter in Hebrews chapter 6. So as we do that, consider verses 11 through 14, Hebrews chapter 5, the Hebrews' lack of gospel progress. Look what it says. Verse 11, in speaking of Christ, this high priest after the order of Melchizedek, it tells us in verse 11, of whom, that is of Jesus, we have many things to say. And hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. That word dull has the idea of slothful. You're dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat, that is solid food, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So what's the story here? He said, you know, I've got a lot of things to tell you about Jesus, but you folks are making it so hard. You're dull of hearing. You're slothful between the ears. What's wrong with you people? You've got so much you ought to be teaching, and I'm having to take you back to kindergarten and instruct you again. So what do you see as the background for Hebrews 6? Hebrews 5, what do you find in Hebrews 5? The Hebrews' lack of gospel progress, and it positions us to understand his strong warning that he gives them in Hebrews 6. It's because of their condition, which is described in Hebrews 5, their lack of progress. So with that backdrop, let's turn to chapter 6 itself. What does he tell us? Let's look in verses 1 through 3. Here we find, in summary, he says, let's leave the beginning 
and let's press to perfection. He's calling them to leave the beginning, the elementary principles, and to press on to maturity. Since we have so many things to say regarding Christ, and by this time you ought to be teachers, in other words, let us leave the beginning of the word of Christ, not reiterating the basics and press on to maturity, and we're going to do it if God permits. Look what he says, verse 1, leaving, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, and of the doctrine of baptisms, and of the laying on of hands, and of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permits. So what is he saying? He's saying, brethren, we're going to go on to perfection. And we're not going to lay the foundation again. And he describes some of these elementary things that would constitute this foundation, right? Repentance from dead works. Repentance is a basic doctrine, isn't it? That change of mind wrought by the Spirit that turns you from your sin, that turns you to God. Repentance from dead works. Faith toward God, that understanding and belief of the truth whereby we receive the gospel. The doctrine of baptisms, and note that it's plural here. What is he talking about? This might seem a little bit unusual for us, but he probably has in mind here the Jewish washings. You remember the Jews had a lot of washings, and they had, these, they had some that were prescribed by the law. They had some that they had added to the law, and they were very particular about these things. You see, they were so focused on the externals rather than the internal of the cleansing that comes by the Spirit and by the blood of Jesus. And this Particularly from those, for those Christians that were from a Hebrew background, this would have been a very basic and fundamental thing. Doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands. You say, laying on of hands? I haven't heard a message on laying on of hands lately. Well, it's still, uh, in this category, considered one of the basics, the fundamentals. We see laying on of hands in a number of ways of scriptures, in the way of blessing, Matthew 19, Connected with healing, Mark chapter 7, in the choice of Stephen, Acts chapter 6, separation to the ministry, Acts chapter 13, what you might call ordination in 1 Timothy 4 and 5 and 2 Timothy 1, and we also see it associated with the receiving of the Spirit, right? Acts chapter 8. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 19, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came upon them. So, in it, and it may be in this connection that laying on of hands is spoken of here, associated with the receiving of the Spirit, which would be a very basic doctrine. Resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. These foundational elements, he says, we're going to leave the foundation, we're going to press on to maturity, if God permit. If God permit, why wouldn't he permit? If God permit. Why does he say that? Because for some folk, They'll never get there. And that's the sober warning in the passage. The impossibility of apostate repentance. That's what we have. We press on to maturity if God permit. But for those who were once enlightened and fallen away, repentance is impossible. Let that sink in. 
and judgment is certain. And this was a very appropriate warning to the Hebrews that had received so much and done so little with it. If God permit, look at the passage, beginning at chapter four, uh, verse 4 of chapter 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. That's the teaching. He describes these spiritual blessings which some have received. And if after having received them, they turn away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And then he gives an illustration of this in verses 6 and 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it. The rain is to be compared, it's analogous to these spiritual blessings. The good word of God, the enlightenment, the heavenly gift, the powers of the world to come. That's analogous to the rain. The worth which drinketh in the rain that cometh up, up, oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. That's what's supposed to happen. God gives light. God gives power. God gives mercy, knowledge, and fruits to be born. But that's not always what happens. Look at this. But for them that bears thorns and briars, for that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. So what is the picture? You have these blessings from heaven that come, the knowledge the light, the power. And instead of bringing forth fruit, there's thorns, there's thistles, there's corruption. What's the end of that soil? It's nigh unto cursing. Now let's look closer at that because this is a, we need, to, we need to take into account what he's saying here. He says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. Now, the idea of enlightenment, it's the same word that's used in John chapter 1, verse 9. There, that, that was that true light which lighteth, that's the word, every man that cometh into the world. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians 1.17, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know. So he's talking about an enlightenment that brings knowledge with it. These are people who are receiving through this enlightenment a knowledge, right? But what do they do with it? Look at 2 Peter 2.20. For if, they, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn 
from the holy commandment delivered unto them. That's the picture that we're seeing here. There's an enlightenment. There's knowledge that comes. But they turn. And it says it would have been better if they'd never known. But not only enlightenment, they have tasted of the, definite, definite article, the heavenly gift. Now, what is the heavenly gift he's talking of here? Well, it's in, from the uh, other passages in Scripture, it very well may be speaking of the gift of the Spirit of God. You consider John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you had known the gift of God, if, you knew, if thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. He says later in that passage, verse 14, the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Later in, in John 7, verse um, 38, he says, as the scripture, he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This he spake of the spirit. So there can be the influence of the spirit even upon those who ultimately are damned. Take now, uh, take that, take that into your mind and think about it. That's that's frightful. There can be people that experience the influence of the Spirit of God and resist. They say no, 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 and get to the place where they can't say yes. Further, even more strongly, it says in the passage, they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Now, how could a lost person be a partaker of the Holy Ghost? In the new birth? Absolutely not. Not in that way. But in other, some other, there's other influence of the Spirit of God. Very definitely, a lost person can experience that and say no and get to the place where he can't say yes. How do we know that? Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Ye stiff-necked, remember Stephen? He's, he's getting bold here. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the preacher, the prophet. Not just that. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. You're resisting the Spirit of God. You can taste the word of God, the good word of God. You can taste the powers of the world to come. Living in this post this apostolic age, apparently some of these Hebrews had seen some of these works of power. You can see that. And if you turn away, You can get to the place where there's no repentance. It's so providential that the brother read Mark chapter 3 this morning. Hebrews 6, this passage, really is one of the keys to help you understand the sin of Mark 3. Why is it that sin has no forgiveness? Because those who commit it have no repentance. You see that? 
They receive the Spirit in His influence, in His power. They taste the Word of God. They taste, they see, they feel, and they say no, no, no. And then there comes a place when God gives them what they've chosen. You don't play with God. Now, we, as we continue to look at the passage, we find that though he warns them so strongly here, he's convinced that they're not yet in this category. He's convinced that though they are babes, you remember what he said? Milk instead of solid food? Though they are babes, they're still believers. He warned them against apostasy, but he does not yet consider them apostates. Look what he says, verse 9 and 10, 9 through 11. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, that's the same word in chapter 5 that's, that's translated dull. Don't be dull of hearing, right? You're dull of hearing. You're dull of hearing. He says, don't be slothful. Don't be dull, but be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promise, promises. So though he's giving them this strong warning, he's also giving them this comfort. Though you're babes, I think you're still believers. I don't believe you're apostates. Your salvation, your work of grace is shown in your heart by your works. Uh, and I'm writing to warn you and trying to promote in you this diligence, this diligence that you don't be dull, that you don't be slothful, but you follow those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see that? It's appropriate to warn believers. And he warns them. And it's strong. Has anyone ever warned you like that? It's appropriate. And then he continues in the chapter and gives them, and, and this is beautiful, he gives them this, this, such a, this, this, this frightful warning, and then he gives them this glorious assurance, this, he calls it a soul anchor, an anchor for the soul. It's a certain soul anchor of promised salvation. What does he tell them? He says, there's a God who can't lie. And he's made a promise. And not only that, he confirmed it with an oath. And it can't change. And so believers can have strong encouragement that they shall obtain what has been promised. And you know what? This is an anchor for your soul. It is sure like an anchor is sure. It is steadfast like an anchor is steadfast. Look what he says, verse 13. When God made promise to Abraham, when did God make promise to Abraham? Do you remember? Genesis chapter 12. You want to flip there? Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, verse 1, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee and I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless him that blesseth thee and curse him that curseth thee. 
and in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. You get to Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that's the gospel. In thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. He made a promise. But not only that, look what it says. For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply they, thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly, to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. What did he do? He confirmed it by an oath. He confirmed it by an oath. He didn't just make a promise. He confirmed, he swore. He made an oath. He confirmed it by an oath. Where do we have that? Genesis 22, you want to flip there? Genesis 22, verses verse 15, starting verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abram out of heaven. The second time, you, you remember the context, Isaac has just been delivered, right? The Lord's provided. Isaac is delivered. The angel of the Lord called unto Abram out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. For because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, Thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of, of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. He made an oath. He made a promise. He made an oath. Verse 18 of our chapter, Hebrews 6, that by two Immutable things. What are the, immutable means can't change, right? It's not going to change. What are the two things? The promise. What's the other thing? The oath. By two immutable things, in the which it is impossible for God to lie. Why did he do it? We, that we might have strong consolation. How are we described? How are believers described in this passage? They're described in this way. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunners for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now let me ask you a question. Where else in Scripture do you see fleeing, refuge, and a high priest? You know? How about Joshua? Let's turn to the book of Joshua. Book of, book of Joshua. Oh, what a book this Bible is. Joshua chapter 20, verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out of you cities of refuge, 
Where have I spake unto you by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, when they, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood? And he shall dwell in that city, verse 6, until he stand before the congregation for judgment, and until the death of the high priest that shall be in those days. Then shall the slayer return and come unto his own city and unto his own house, unto the city from which he fled. So what's the picture? What is it? It's dealing with the situation in Israel. It's dealing with the matter of civil government. So what you have is something like this. Here you have these guys in the field, okay, and they're working, and they've got an axe, and they're swinging the axe, and the axe head comes off, and it hits the guy across, busts him in the head, drops him to the ground. You run over there to check on him. He's dead as a doornail. The guy's brother shows up and says, you killed him, and you're in trouble. He didn't see it happen. He thinks you murdered him. Now, in those days, the avenger of blood was authorized to put to death murderers. But that doesn't mean he always got it right. Maybe in this case, you killed him, but you didn't mean to. The Lord had made provision. He had appointed cities of refuge. And to one of those cities, you could flee. And in that city, you would get a hearing, and you could get deliverance from what? Deliverance from vengeance. But you had to stay in the city. If you went outside the city, you were a goner. You had to stay in the city. And you had to stay, so it was kind of like house arrest. You had to stay there until when? Until the death of the high priest. And then you were delivered. Do you think the Lord's teaching us something about the gospel? All the way back in Joshua chapter 20. You see, brother and sister, there's, there's blood on your hands. And you don't have any good works to plead. You're in danger of vengeance. But there's a hope that's set before you. The Lord has appointed a refuge. And you better get there as fast as you can. You better get there right now. You've got to flee to that refuge. There's a God-appointed city. And in that city, there's a high priest. But our high priest, he's dead and he lives forever. Look what it says in Hebrews 12, 22. You're coming to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, which speaketh better things than that of Abel. There's a priest there, a high priest, who's died, and by his death you are freed from vengeance. And so you flee to that city. We've got a refuge. We've got a strong consolation so that's something of the content of the passage now having looked at the content what should we do about it 
What should we believe? What should we think? What should we do? Well, first of all, I want us to consider something that's just right on the surface. Believers should aspire to maturity, right? I mean, that's right there. Believers should aspire to maturity, verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Believers should aspire to maturity. Jonathan Edwards, now you've probably heard of Jonathan Edwards, a wonderful man of God, lived in the 18th century. He was converted about 1721, they think, about 1721, as a 17-year-old guy. In, in the next year, 1722, he wrote his resolutions. Now, I remember, he'd been a Christian maybe, maybe a year. Look what he says. I'm just going to give you a few of them. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved to endeavor to obtain, endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. I want to live now so that heaven will be the sweetest as possible. With all the power, might, Vigor and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or, bring or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Resolve, take this one home with you. To study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, frequently that I, might, that I may find myself and perceive myself to plainly grow in the knowledge of the same. Resolved. Never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. Mike, that sounds like so much work. I think I'm getting a cluster headache. Is that what you think? You, see, you know what will change your attitude if all this looks like is just a bunch of stuff to do? Seeing Christ. You see, the kingdom of God is like a treasure in the field. And that treasure is so great. You do the math, it's worth selling everything you got to get that treasure. You think you're going to be indifferent to that treasure? You're not. You're going to take real good care of it. You're going to build a big fence around it if that's what it takes. Hire out. Hire a guard service, 24-hour surveillance, right, on that treasure. You're going to take pains both to obtain it and to keep it. Is Christ a treasure to you? You see, there was a merchant man once. He was hurting, hunting for good pearls, and he knew, he knew what he was doing. And he found a pearl of great price. And he understood, you know, that's worth everything I've got. I'm going to sell it all. I'm going to get that pearl. Is that just a bunch of work? Or is that just wisdom? Is that just delight? Because your affections are attached to that pearl of great price. Believers should aspire to maturity. 
Now, the passage also gives us this sober warning, and we've already discussed it, the dread end of apostates, and it should prompt us to diligence. Isn't that what he's doing in this passage? He's saying, you're dull of hearing. You ought to be teachers, and I'm having to teach you again the first principles of the oracle of God. And you might say, teacher, you want me to teach? I'm a 15-year-old girl. You want me to teach the church? Is that what you're talking about? No, darling, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of teaching that it talks about in Peter, where you're ready to give an answer to everyone who asks of you concerning the hope that is within you with gentleness and reverence. Every believer ought to be a teacher like that. Someone asks you a question, then you could instruct them in the gospel. You ought to be to that point. He says, you ought to be to that point, you Hebrews. You're not there. So much has been invested in you. And what have you done with it? The rain has fallen. The rain has fallen. But where's the crop? I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about you. Why am I concerned about you? Because you're taking a step in the direction towards the, of those who get to the place where they can't repent. Because they say, no, 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 no. And they grow harder and harder and harder and harder. Until they demonstrate that the matter, root of the matter was never in them. You see, some people say no to God in such an informed and ultimate way. Not, we're not talking a partial way or a temporary way. We're not talking about someone who gets scared and denies Jesus and later repents, like Peter. We're talking about someone who says over and over, no. They can do that to where they can't say yes, and it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And you say, why are you telling us that? We're church people. Well, that's why. Where's the most dangerous place in the world to be? It's to be under the word of God week after week after week after week saying no, 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 no. Why is it, every, you see this occasionally, why is it every so often something hits the news, this guy, he's been a deacon and or a preacher, or an evangelist for 35 years, and he's, you know, convicted in some, you know, gang uh, murder ring, and, you know, uh, d selling the bodies to some forest and cult, cult uh, country where they do all this crazy stuff. I mean, he's just this depth of iniquity, and oh, well, he was supposed to be a, why wasn't he an evangelist? How do people, how does that happen? Could it be this, that they sit under the word, and they say, no, 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 until their heart is so hard, they could do anything without a twinge of conscience. Closer to home, why are there some folks who sit under the word week after week after week and they can't tell you a thing about what they heard? Maybe they spend their whole childhood in a church and the church preaches the truth, but these, these folks can't tell you the gospel. It's like they weren't there. From their perspective, it might be, well, you know what? I just really never, never was really interested in that. And so I just kind of tuned it out, you know? So I just learned how to just sit there and just kind of 
look at all the crazy stuff that was going on around and entertain myself. And, you know, I finally got over it. It just didn't bother me anymore. Are there any testimonies out there like that? See, they think they're in control. But the Bible says that the devil's involved in that kind of thing. Parable of the soils. Do you remember it? The wayside soil are those that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their heart, lest they should believe and be saved. So you think you're in control, but it's the devil who's got you in his grip. And he's taken that word out of your heart. And he's doing it so you'll be damned. But you think you're in control. It's not so. You think you're in charge. But you know, sometimes something different happens. Sometimes God comes, and there's light. And you can't ignore it like you're in the habit of ignoring it. There's light. There's power. There's conviction. And you're almost persuaded. But you start thinking, if I go that way, I'm going to have to quit doing that. I'm going to have to quit doing that. I'm going to have to start doing that. No, I'm not going that way. You're on the road to Hebrews 6. You can only do that so many times before God gives you what you've chosen. Every time the word is preached, God is putting a fork in the road before you. Will you have me or will you have your lust? Will you have me or will you have your ambition? Will you have me or will you have your career? Whatever your pantheon of idols is. He's calling you away from your idols and he's calling you to Christ. And every time you say no, you're taking a step closer to the path of Hebrews 6 that leads to hell. For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'm going to... I want to call anyone who's not come to Christ to come to him right now. Any young person who's not come to Christ, come to Christ right now, not later. To come later is to come, to say yes later is to say no today. You don't have that option. He's calling you to come now. Is that about I don't know enough? Come with what you know. You remember the blind man in John chapter 8? He didn't know much. <laughs> Except Jesus healed him. He knew that. Hey, we know he's a sinner. I don't know if he's a sinner. I just know he healed me. You believe on the Son of Man? Well, who is he? He didn't know much. What he knew, he knew, though. Don't wait to come later. Come now with what you know. 
Some folks need a kick in the britches. Some young people need a kick in the britches. They are covered up with gospel blessings. They are swimming in gospel blessings. There's some, among, there's some here, some of us, we were raised by wolves. We didn't know up from down. We thought vice was virtue. We were in the dark. We were clueless. We were wicked. We were marinated in iniquity. You have so much. The preaching of the word, godly examples, godly <coughs> nurture. What are you doing with it? You need to embrace the father of lights who's showered his mercies upon you and come to Jesus today. Amen. Not tomorrow. Not, not another hour. Don't let another hour go by before you come. How do you come to him? By faith. You look and live. And you do that now. You don't have to wait till I finish. Come to Jesus now. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid I've already done this sin. I'm afraid there's no repentance for me. You know how you can prove that you're not in this situation? Repent. Those who repent cannot possibly be beyond repentance. That's just logic, right? You come to Jesus, it's not talking about you. You repent, it's not talking about you. You come to Christ, he will receive you. He will receive you. Come to Jesus. Come to him today. What else do we see in the passage? We see God's love is personal. You think about that? God's love is personal. Personal. When God came to the world in salvation, he made a promise to a man. But when God made promise to Abraham, you see that? He made a promise to Abraham. He came to a man. And he said, I'm going to bless you. But there was a larger aspect to that promise as well. He said that through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. So this promise to a man, including a, a blessing to groups of people, all the families of the earth. And like I mentioned earlier, Galatians 3 tells us that this promise made to Abraham actually is the, is a, is the, it was, was the gospel. It says he preached the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Now the Apostle Paul understood that in this covenant promise to Abraham, was the promise of the gospel to the nations. He also understood that there was a remnant among Israel. Because he was made to Abraham too, right? The father of the Israel, Israel nation. There was, it included the Israelites as well. There was a remnant according to the election of grace, he says in Romans chapter 11. So <clears throat> he understood this blessing to apply to the Gentiles. He understood it to apply to the remnant of elect Israelites, and he understood it to apply to a guy named Saul of Tarsus. Look what he says. Galatians 3.20. I am crucified with Christ, he says. It wasn't just the elect in mass. It wasn't just the people of God in mass. It, it was me. 
am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you feel that in your soul? This God who so loved the world that he gave his son, he loved you, brother. He loved you, sister. He knows your name. He knows who you are. He knows your GPS coordinates. He loved you personally. Don't let the Arminians take that from you. God loves you and has a hand butter. God loves you and has butter. For some folks, it's true. God loves you. He loved you. Not just the sheep in mass, the elect in mass, but he loved you. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin. Not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Do you feel that? Do you sense that? Do you believe that for you? Oh, that'll fill you with joy. That'll strengthen you to run in the way of his commandments. This poor man cried. Psalm 34. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. God's love, brother, is personal. What else do we learn? Well, we see in the passage... The certainty of salvation for believers. We've talked about it already. What is it based on? I want you to consider that very closely. What is the assurance of salvation based on? Some people struggle with assurance of salvation. Wouldn't surprise me if there's some in this room who do. Who struggle with it. Who struggle mightily with it. I myself, for years, struggled with it. You don't have to struggle with it. The Word of God contains the basis for your assurance, for your certainty, for your comfort. It's there. And I want to see if we can make some progress. If there's anyone here that are struggling with that to maybe help them. But we find in the passage the certainty of salvation. It's based on what God has said. Look at it, verses 17 and 18. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong Consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want to tell, say this very clearly. Believers may presently, I mean, that means now, 
have strong consolation because of what God's done. You can have consolation. That is, you can have comfort. You can have encouragement. And this is a strong foundation of hope for those that struggle with assurance of salvation. And what's the foundation of it? Let's look at it. First of all, it involves God's character. What is it about God's character that is the basis of your assurance? He can't lie! That's it! He tells the truth! He can't lie! And brother, sister, for those of you that struggle with this, am I saved or am I not? This is at the heart of why you struggle with, with it, some of you. Either because you don't know what he says, or you don't believe what he says. You say, I believe the Bible. Yeah, I think you believe parts of it. But I wonder if you believe all of it. I think you really, if you, you might really wonder, is it really that good? Could it possibly be that full, that free, that unconditional? Could it possibly reach so low and grab me and my nasty, woolly, stinky, wretched, slimy sins and pull me out and receive me without anything, any merit on my part? Is it really that good? Yes, it's that good. It's that good. John Bunyan, John Bunyan, the wonderful Baptist preacher in the 17th century, he wrote a book, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. John Bunyan struggled mightily for years with the, with the assurance of his salvation. He, he went through agony. He writes all about it. What was it that set him free? It was the word of God. The Lord helping him to lay hold of it by faith. What passage was it? John 6.37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. What does that mean? You come to me, there's no reason you'll be rejected. I will in no wise. Well, what about this? No wise. Well, what about that? In no wise. Well, what about this circumstance? In no wise. What if I do this? In no wise. What if I fail to do that? In no wise. In no wise. It's true or it's not. If it's true and you believe it, brother, you can start rejoicing today that Jesus Christ has received you. So part of the problem in this struggle Part of the, one of the barriers between the believer and strong consolation is they fail to believe God's character. He says, the Bible says he can't lie. You kind of wonder, maybe worry if he maybe has a little. He would never say that, but you treat, functionally, you treat his word like that. You read it and you say, oh, yeah, well, I don't know about that. Don't know. I mean, you can read, right? It's pretty plain. Do you believe it or do you not? You need to take yourself in hand and bear yourself down on that word and say, I will not tolerate my unbelief any longer. It's true. Are you going to deal with yourself that violently? You better be prepared to. It might take that. But if you will, well, there's sweetness. There's comfort. There's strong consolation. So the part, one of the big things here 
is a grip on getting a grip on God's character. I want you to also consider this as we've read, this strong consolation. Who's God, who, who's God doing this for? Who's God doing this for? Why did, and he, made a, he made a promise, and then he made a no. Why did he do it? He didn't have to do that. He's free. He can do anything he wants. Why did he do that? He says in verse 18, that we might have. He did it for you. He did it for you. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that, but it's really not quite enough. What? What? It's not enough. Man, you got your head on crooked. You are so, you've allowed your doubts, you've allowed your fears to so distort, to so distort, to so twist your mind that you can't, that you're not seeing things straight. He gave you the perfect basis for your assurance. And you're saying, well, I wish you'd have done something else. I wish you'd have done it in this, this, this kind of peculiar way that I think he kind of has to to satisfy my kind of weird thing that I got going on over here. Kick that out. He gave you the perfect assurance. He knows what he's doing. Do you think he knows what he's doing? Were you willing to say, well, he knows what he's doing. He's given me a strong basis for consolation, and if I don't receive it as such, something must be wrong with me. The guy in the mirror that I'm looking at. It must be me. It must be me. He did it for you, believer, that we might have a strong consolation. It's a sufficient basis. Get that firm in your mind. It's sufficient. It's the right thing. It's what you need. You need him to lift you out of your weirdness your twistedness, your unbelief, to be able to see it rightly. He can do that too. He did it for the heirs of the promise. More God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. The Bible's for you, Christian. These promises are you. All the promises of God, they're yes and amen. In Jesus Christ. Here's a fellow who's with the Lord now. is Dr. Cornelius Van Til. He uh, was educated at Princeton before they went liberal. Served with J. Gresham Machen, that uh, junkyard dog hero of the Reformed faith back in the 20s. One of the, just a tremendous, tremendous scholar, author, theologian, Christian, uh, apologist, but and so humble and so childlike in his faith. He said this in his credo. He said, I've never met Christ in the flesh. No matter. He's written me a letter. <laughs> That's how he described the Bible. I've never seen Jesus, but Jesus wrote me a letter. No, not he himself. He chose helpers. By his spirit, the truth, the spirit of truth, and these helpers, he wrote what he wanted me to know. Is that how you view the Bible? I haven't seen Jesus, but he wrote me a letter. And it's got everything he wants me to know. And it's sufficient. And he made a, in that letter, he made a promise. And he made an oath. And he said he did it for me, that I might have a strong consolation. And I think he knows what he's doing. I'm sure of it. And so... I think it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stake my life on it. I'm going to start acting like it's true. That's wonderful. 
God's character, God's audience, God's purpose. What is his purpose? That we might have strong consolation. God's purpose for you, not only that you live a holy life, but that you have strong consolation as you do. You might live in the joy of the Lord. That you might live in the light of his favor that he's shown in Jesus Christ by his grace expressed in his promise. And what was the means? What was the means of this strong consolation? Well, he's telling that again. It's a promise and an oath. It's not you. And what you do and how you feel and what you say and what you don't say. Yes, it matters how you live. But what's the basis of your consolation? It's not in you. The basis of it, where is it? It's in a promise. It's in an oath. Those things are not going to change. That is the means. And some of you, that's your problem, perhaps. You're looking in the wrong place for your assurance. You're saying, but I read 1 John. I've got a Bible too. I read that. It says that if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It says if we, if we don't walk in the light, we're liars. Yes, yes, holiness is absolutely. Real believers live a pattern of godliness. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. That's right. But is, is, your, is your Christian life, is that the basis of your assurance? I hope you've got something better than that because mine got, has a lot of holes in it. It's that promise. What do you do when you sin? You do sin, don't you? Because First John has something about that to say as well. We say we have no sin. Well, we're liars, right? So what do you do when you sin? Where do you look for hope? Where do you look for assurance? I hope it's to that promise. I hope it's to that oath. And when you're so inundated, all you see is blackness and darkness and your sin, what do you do? You flee to that refuge. And what's the hope? Those who flee are received. Those who flee find refuge. But you don't know what I did. I don't have to know what you did. If you flee for refuge, to that hope set before you, you will be saved. You will. Flee today. Flee tomorrow. Flee this morning. Flee in the afternoon. Flee, 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 flee. You sin, you flee. That's, the That's Christian life. John Calvin said we were born to repent. Christian life's a life of repentance. You sin, you flee. You sin, you flee. And then consider God's willingness, his willingness, God willing, not just willing, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. He really did a lot, Christian. The Lord did a lot to see to your comfort. Don't you treat it like it's nothing or does it doesn't match up to your standard or that you need something else. He did a lot. He did enough. He did more than enough. He did abundantly enough for you to have strong consolation. And why did he do so much? Well, he knows, he knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. He knows our weakness. He knows our unbelief. And he's provided an abundant basis for our comfort. May it be your comfort this morning. Let's look to him in prayer. We bless you, Father.
Love so amazing, love so divine, demands our life, our soul, our all. May it be so. Amen. Thank you so much, Jeff. And we thank our great Savior and King for teaching us this morning. Please stand, and we will have our benediction from Corinthians. We've already had the blessing which benediction means. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Let us go in the glory and light of these truths. Amen.